Welcome to Herbal Explorations, a podcast hosted by Wilson Lau of New Herbs. Each week, we speak to leading experts about what's happening in the herbal industry. Hi, I would like to welcome Holly Johnson, the Chief Science Officer of the American Herbal Products Association, back to Herbal Explorations. What's your view on climate changes and its impact on the herbal supply chain? How do you see, you know, climate change, global warming, um, really impacting the quality and the availability? You know, availability of herbs, I think a lot of people already understand that portion of it. But I really, since you're the scientist and really want to talk about the quality portion of it, like how will it impact, you know, the quality, the phytochemical activity of the herbs that we use? Um, how would climate change impact that? Yeah, this is a huge, I feel like we could have a whole, you know, a whole nother a day long uh, talks about this whole whole topic. But yeah, I I think that there's a few different issues there, Wilson, and climate change definitely. I mean, just you know, we just had those big uh, hurricane go through Florida. We think about okay, Florida, what commodity in our herbal marketplace is there? Saw palmetto. Are the continuing storms there, um, whether it be more wet, more stormy, more whatever, are going to affect our, our you know ability to, to harvest saw palmetto? And so, and we heard a bunch of these examples in in our botanical congress mm-hmm. that, as well. I think. You know, there's things we think about things like coconut or other palm type commodities, things that grow near near uh, shorelines. We always think about you know rising shore uh, ocean levels, this type of thing. But really, these effects can be can be everywhere. You know, in terms of whether things are cultivated or or coming from the wild. So I think this is a really really broad question, and I think there's all kinds of factors that are going to influence the changes in the way that we grow our our harvest our medicinal herb species. And so even, you know, we had one of our speakers gave an example of valerian. So first of all, you know, you mentioned the supply demand thing and valerian is one of those herbs that has spiked in popularity in the past three years Mm -hmm. since the pandemic started. It's a very, you know, traditional herb has a long history of use um, as kind of a a sedative anxiolytic effects helps with sleep. Um, really skyrocketed in popularity as those uh, types of effects were, were more desirable and needed uh, with the stress that came perhaps came along with the pandemic conditions. And so as the uh, demand is going up, this is an herb that's been cultivated um, in the Pacific Northwest of the United States for decades and pretty successfully, right? Um, mm-hmm. But in the past several years of harvest and this, you know, these conditions predated the pandemic, really hot temperatures during the summer have been plaguing the Pacific Northwest. And, you know, I live here in Hawaii where we have ostensibly three or four kind of seasons of harvest, but in places like Oregon and Washington, you can't plant at any time of year. You've got one season, right? You kind of plant in the spring, harvest in the fall. And what what they're experiencing up there is way hotter temperatures in the past maybe five years or so. And they have these data and they were getting, I think the thing was over 25 days in a row of over 95 degrees Fahrenheit temperatures. Mm -hmm. And this was unheard of just 10 years ago. So this very much decreased the yield that, that people are getting, the yield per acre of the actual valerian root. So again, we don't know for sure that it's affected the the quality of those pieces of herbs, and that wasn't what what our speaker was talking about per se, but certainly affecting business, right? So if you get 
only 40 or 60% of the yield per acre you were getting before, right as the supply is going up, you're getting inundated with more demands um, from new clients that want to buy this. It just really illustrates the, the issue that I think is kind of one of the most important when you're qualifying suppliers, it's not just like a check checklist of things. Really try to build long-term relationships with your suppliers. And I think that's the shift that, that, I, that I wanted to get to, Wilson. Your question was, how are we going to be, you know, how is climate change really going to push our business practices into a different way? And I think that's going to be one of the biggest ways is that we really have to become besties with our with our farmers our, our um, collectors our suppliers you know in, whether they're ingredient suppliers or actual farmers um, in terms of qualifying an ingredient qualifying a, a farm a supplier and involving things like hey I don't want to just buy you know whatever quantity of valerian you have right now let's talk about the next five years let's talk about the next 10 years so that we can do some planning and I think what I hear a lot about is different types of contracts being negotiated to give more security to farmers, um, maybe brands paying a bit upfront to have these things, securing long-time contracts as new things are brought into cultivation. I think quality can only improve as we do these things and as you, you know, put big, better, uh, stronger qualification pro programs in place um, in terms of qualifying new ingredients, especially ones that have had a change in their source due to climate change. But Right now is the time to be thinking about these things, Wilson, right? Not when um, a hurricane wipes out all of the saw palmetto, right? And I, so I think that's another thing I think right now that's with the urgency is being felt by, by some at least is to really shore up these, these types of things to make sure that we can get a continued supply of high quality herbs. Yeah, it's extremely important. I think relationships and stability is a great, way to think about supply chain and develop and developing and investing in those relationships so that you can have a reliable and steady supply. And I think it's, you know, we need to move from, I hate to say it this, well, I love to say it, but I hate to say it. Um, I love to say it from <laughs> a personal standpoint and how new, and also how new herbs does business. We really need to think about things in a multi-year approach and and stop moving from a just-in-time approach. But, you know, I hate to say that because just as supply chain has moved people from just-in-time to something other than just-in-time, now it's also we need to start lengthening the horizon. And I think that change is going to really keep the word supply chain in everyone's mind and lexicon is because Hey, is not talking about just having enough this year or even the next 18 months. No. It's like, how do we ensure we have quality material over the length of the longevity of the brands and companies we want to be? Um, so I think that's absolutely essential. And one of the things that a lot of people don't realize as well is your Valerian example is very astute, right? A, if you're only yielding 40% per acre, and if that's the expectation going forward, then if you need the same amount of material, the farmer has to go use more land to get the same yield, which will change, impact the costs um, calculations as well. So it's if you don't plan with them, right, and they just keep planting those 10 acres, for example, they've been planting, well, they're only going to produce 40% of their old yield. 
So they would probably need to plant at least double or as like more than double to get to their old yield. So it's a really a question of can you do this and what it would take to do it. So I think that's extremely astute. Um, you know, with the stream weather events that's been happening, you know, I, the way I'm reading studies that some plants are going to be, botanicals are going to be in peril. Some of them won't do as well given 45 days of 95 degree weather. Never expect that in the Pacific Northwest, uh, yeah. like hops. But some plants might do even better. Like one of the things that shocked me, I read a study in a scientific journal, not not a not of not out of the back of uh, my <laughs> phone, but a scientific journal was saying that poppies love carbon, and they project as global warming warming continues that they'll become twice as potent in the future. So as a chief science officer, what's your take on this? Like how do you think global warming will change the chemical profile of the plants in the future? And, and if so, like how does that impact our assumptions revolving around testing, identity, strength, potency, all those things? Great question, Wilson. And this is one that we've been considering for, for, for quite a long time in, in a context even beyond climate change, right? And this is known and certain plants, um, species will, you know, everything is unique. Like you said about this one example, the, the, that the, the poppies love carbon. Other things like echinacea, it loves really crappy soils, right? And it'll produce a lot more of the good things. So, so it's, it really does depend on, on species to species variation. And, you know, we can all think about like a wine grape, right? You can grow a Cabernet grape in the mountains of France and it's, it, you could grow that same stock of grape in the Pacific Northwest and it's going to taste different. But does that still mean that we, could we test it for identity? Could we still say this is a Cabernet grape? Could we still say, um, it's going to have the same effect. It may have the same, you know, amount of alcohol, uh, just a different profile of these other secondary metabolites that affect flavor and taste. So it does go back to also intended use. Um, it depends what you're trying to use your herb for uh, in terms of if the, the slight changes in chemical fingerprints that may occur really affects, um, you know, the acceptability, not necessarily the quality, but the acceptability to you of this, this article or this material for your intended use. So I think, you know, getting really um, specific on specifications, if you will, in terms of what is it that I need from my poppy? Do I need it to have, you know, this much of this thing? Or am I using this for taste in my tea? And I actually need it to have a certain, you know, level of these other markers or that type of thing. So I think things are going to uh, in in some ways, perhaps get a little more specific. There, valerian's another example that um, we've heard about that valerian brought into cultivation in different areas is now not passing some of the traditional identity tests that we use to support identity specifications. And that could be an issue. And that doesn't mean it's not valerian. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's not really good valerian for your intended use, whatever that may be. Um, but you are going to have to find uh, a way to to test the identity or support your identity specification um, that might be different than, than has been used in the past. The same type of issue has come up. You've probably heard of this, Wilson, with Tulsi. Mm -hmm. um, Tulsi, traditionally grown in India. Uh, a lot of farmers here in the U.S. have started growing it, and it seems to have a, a slightly different phytochemical profile. Again, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not really good Tulsi for the intended use, um, but we may have to adjust our, our methods and our specs um, to, to be able to, to 
you know, use those types of materials. So I think there's going to be rapid adjustment and there's no one big trend, you know, for me to say, oh, this is what's going to happen. It's like some, some plant species could be just completely stable. They move to some crazy different soil or new different place and, or like you said, improve on one or more of the molecules that we, we grow them for. Um, one of the things I keep talking about recently is sustainability as a specification, right? And so I feel like this kind of goes in there too, when you think about what marker compounds or what, what things are really critical to this material for your intended use. And I think that'll be an area that, that those of us in the industry will have to really key in on. I wonder too, Wilson, you told me you had started growing, um, your company has a new project with hibiscus in Mexico and growing it there. I wonder if you have, you know, does this relate at all to, to that crop? Have you guys seen shifts in, in phytochemical profiles or that type of thing? It, it, the hibiscus that we're growing in Mexico is very similar to the hibiscus in Africa from a phytochemical profile standpoint. The acidity is there. But again, back to your question, the original comment, it's for its intended use. And this is the hibiscus that we're selling is primarily going to the tea and beverage market where they want the color, the city, the tartness, and that what's what matters to them, right? Um, so we're looking at acidity, anthocyanins for colors, and color, um, and it's just it like you said, it's fit for purpose. Do we really need to ship hibiscus from Africa to get that intended purpose? Now we're growing, we're growing in Mexico. We're shipping from Mexico to North America. That supply chain is a lot shorter, is a lot tighter, and also the carbon footprint is a lot smaller. We we are going to do a study and see, sort of try to quantify what that looks like. But it's really about its intended purpose. I would be more hesitant to do something like this if it wasn't for food or if it wasn't used in a highly standardized extract. Because we for traditional traditional herbalism and that's where we you know new herbs is rooted in that and so we're always very conscious about intended use right and because even something like whether it's ginseng the most studied you know one of the most studied herbs out there where we know a lot about it we don't know everything and we don't even understand we have barely scratched the surface to understand is it the genocides we want that that make it such a great adaptogen or is it some other metabolite secondary third? Is it because the combination of, you know, the metabolites and potents and other chemicals, like how it comes together, that it's the actual thing that we want. So it's very hard when you want to use it for wellness to say, especially if you're using it along the traditional veins to say, Oh, great. Let's just go plant somewhere else. Um, you know, that's not something New Herbs normally does, but because of the intended use, the intended marketplace, and how it's used, we found it appropriate to do this um, kind of um, shift from sourcing it in Africa to, you know, growing it in Mexico. And I think it's really about, is it fit for purpose? And like you said, another point you made that I really want people to understand what, what, is really behind that is a growing is directly impacting the sustainability of something. And what I mean by that, and I think, and I won't speak for you. This is what my interpretation of it is, um, is that 
if I want it just for color, well, I want to, you know, find that cultivar or hybrid or trying to find something that will yield the most amount of color from that plant. So by doing that, I can now reduce the tonnage and the area and the amount that needs to be grown to yield the same amount of color or phytochemicals or active constituents. Um, that is really impactful about what we do, especially if we look at it that way. It's like with standardized extracts, it's like, well, we're trying to hit something, a, a marker compound to a certain degree, right? And let's try to find the best material possible. And um, one of um, our mutual friends, and I think we all uh, revere him in the industry, Joseph uh, Brinkman, was telling me, and you know, and a lot of other herbalists, but I think he said it the best. Is like, look, when he started in the industry, you could grind up powder, <laughs> herbs. I won't say what herb, but uh, you grind up the herb, and you and you didn't need to make an extract. You could hit the mark. You could hit the marker ratios. Right. And well, if that's the case, if I could grow that same herb, well, I don't need to go through the extraction process, which saves a lot of energy and resources to hit that marker compound. If I just grow something that hits 2%, I don't need to go extract it. So this is the things that, you know, why quality and knowing who, where you're getting it from and how you, and what your purpose is and really having that communication say, this is what I want to do with it. How can we get there? in a way that is the most environmentally sound. I think, Wilson, you just hit on a couple of things that I found, you know, are worth mentioning again, that, you know, relocating from Africa to Mexico is not just about, you know, it is about sustainability, about, you know, not just cost or economics mm -hmm. or, you know, the, the ports being clogged up, um, but actually, it, you know, all of it makes it more sustainable to be closer and, and shortening that supply chain. And one of the other like regulations, international regulations, laws that's been affecting people lately is CITES, right? So I think there's things, in, and again, it's all related to climate change and con conservation of biodiversity. But what CITES is, is looking out for, of course, is plants that are harvested from the wild and that might be on decline or need protection from the wild or their wild populations need protection. What the CITES law does not apply to is cultivated mm -hmm. materials of that same species, right? So, you know, you said it took, uh, you know, X long for you to figure out, okay, we want to hit this, you know, X percent mark with our anthocyanins or this and that and trying to optimize those crops. You know, it's really great and innovative. You guys are taking these steps before there's a critical issue, before it gets put on the CITES list and your whole supply gets, uh, gets stopped, right? And so, I mean, Recently, um, Boswellia, Boswellia serrata was one that was being considered for, for CITES annotation. A new uh, one that's up for consideration with CITES is uh, Rhodiola rosea. Mm -hmm. And it's, again, it's one of those plants that kind of grows in these really specific high altitude type conditions. It's not real easy for me to say, oh, just give me some rootstock. I'll start growing that over here in Hawaii. You know, it's really going to take some... Um, you know, tinkering perhaps in, in many species cases to actually get the quality of, of the herbal material that you want into cultivation. It is. So these are long processes and, and people like companies like you who are starting early and, you know, kind of getting in there with certain, um, certain commodities before you're in complete crisis. This is, I think, what we, we all need to be paying attention to in the industry. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, talking about CITES, I'll, I'll share a story with you um, about that is that I have a partner um, 
in China, and they focus on this really high-end wellness. And one of the core products they wanted to do was dendrobium, which is um, mm. orchid, part of the orchid family, Cites herb. Yeah. And, you know, A, it was an investment of millions of dollars U.S. to figure out how to do it. But they figured out how to do it, grow it from germplasm and then take it from the lab to the to a covered, you know, greenhouse and then from greenhouse out to the field. So these things are all possible. Um, I wouldn't say everything's possible, but a lot of things are possible with the right investment. It's just whether there is a desire to really make that change and a need for it, right? And and people are willing to invest in things that they're passionate and believe in, whether it's from a financial standpoint or from another standpoint or from sustainability or whatever it may be. But in order to do this, it's like someone has to raise their hand and said, say, I'm the one to do it or I want to be part of the solution, right? It really takes that kind of Absolutely. effort. Um but science, the science is out there. The resources are out there. It's not going to be possible for everything. But, um, but I think the, that's another avenue people could really explore. It's like, how do we grow this better or use less resources to grow it? Or how do we move it from wild crafting to cultivation? And I think one of the things that we have to remember about wild crafting, um, Holly, is as our demographics age, and as people move from rural to urban areas, there's less and less people out there wild crafting. So even though it may be abundant in the wild, doesn't mean people will actually go do it. So you still might have to move something from wild crafted to cultivated because no one's going to go out there and try to make a living doing this. Wilson, this is such a salient point is that these, you know, traditionally, you and I know it's the farmer or the wild crafter that kind of gets the smallest piece of the pie as you go, you know, through the mm-hmm. value chain from like a, the actual botanical organism to a finished product that's on the shelf. But in this, in these cases, you know, yes, some of these wild harvesters in regions all over, even here in Appalachia in the United States are just traditionally very underpaid for for the work they do. And so it comes to a point if they can find other work to do for more money or the same money, that's, you know, this, how are you going to retain them in the, in the industry? It's really serious. And increasingly we see, you know, some of the communities, especially globally, um, when you get into maybe indigenous communities where harvesting some wild commodities is actually it's it's part of their their living right it's part of their their way that they their whole you know village or community survives so we don't want to just jump to say the the solution in every case is to bring things into cultivation um, sometimes it may be helping those communities be able to continue with their wild harvest in whatever ways that may be certainly by paying them more in some ways but also by you know providing infrastructure to their village you know just making it uh, their lives in some ways easier so that they can continue to harvest this commodity as part of their livelihood so there's you know solutions aren't it's not easy as we said and it's different with each different species um, even in those that are wild harvested so your point is so well taken Wilson this is something that you know, it's a species by species, almost commodity by commodity, or, you know, depending where globally these things are happening. And um, how do we help 
those that end of the value chain, the, the kind of one, the ones with their hands in the dirt, whether it be from wild populations or cultivation, really stay in the value chain and, and, and make it worth their while to have that be a part of their livelihood. Yeah. And I think that's why the work that Fair Wild does is so important, right? To your point, is like, how do we support these communities? Because I think wildcraft, the, the, the thing that is really interesting about wildcrafters is that that isn't their main source of income. It's really wildcrafting supporting plus something else or multiple things that make up that pot of income that supports their lifestyle and the ability to live in the areas that traditionally live in. So it's like the farmer may wildcraft during certain times when they can't farm and sort of supplement their income that way or do whatever they may be doing, right? So it's not... You know, I haven't seen a situation where a wild, that's 100% sole source of their income was where they're yeah. wild um, collecting something. And, you know, maybe if you're a licorice farmer and you, you know, you wild crafter and you got to go process it and you, cause you, you know, harvested thousands of tons of licorice, maybe like, but outside of something like that, I, you know, it's usually not at scale, right? Wild harvesting. So that it's it's hard to just do that to be your sole source of income. Absolutely. Yeah. On a last question of the day, it's such a great conference talking to you. It goes by so quickly. Uh, season two of Herbal Explorations, we focus on sustainability. Are there any things or topics you would like to see us cover more of and uh, as we're sort of prepping for season two and uh, getting guests on? Oh, fun. What a great question. Um Gosh, all these things we've discussed today, I'm sure we'll be, you'll have different experts in this kind of thing. But um, one of the other things, I think I mentioned this a few minutes ago, is sustainability as a specification. And like how how many, you know, maybe uh, uh, featuring that, Wilson, of like how companies are incorporating this. We at APA right now, we're doing a, a project, you know, we have our, our GACP, our Good Agricultural and Collection Practices document. Um, that was put out in 2017. I think you and, and many others of our, our experts and board members were a part of creating that. What we've been working on is expanding it to include sustainability parameters. So the question I get a lot, and maybe this is a question for your season two guests, is how do you know your ingredients are sustainable? Like if you're going out to shop for an ingredient, oh, I need to buy this and I want it to be sustainable. How do you know? Obviously, there's some some voluntary certification standards. There's things like the Fairwild, you know, you could... Hundred percent. If you want to, if you want for sure, you can just go buy a Fairwild ingredient and get involved in that program. But you know, not all companies um, want to buy certified ingredients or have the money or that kind of thing. You know, but how do you know um, those types of things? And so that's what we're trying to do a little bit more in our GACP revision. Is companies could pick and choose what's important to them. If they say, "Oh, regenerative agriculture is our really biggest focus. We want to make sure all our farms are doing regenerative techniques." What can you do when you're qualifying that supplier in terms of a checklist or questions to ask them in the qualification to make sure, you know, what is their level of sustainability? So I feel like that's, you know, we did talk a bit about metrics and that kind of stuff today, but I feel like what a cool question to ask some of your, you know, next subject matter experts or companies that might be coming on in next season is, how do you know, you know, you want to buy this? And, And of course, we've got things like certified organic but maybe you want to go farther than that. And, and you know, and, and I think these types of things are, are going to be being discussed as we go, go forward for sure. And with sustainability as kind of a, not something extra, but like a baseline specification for a certain ingredient and maybe not just an ingredient or a, 
a supplier, um, but suppliers of other things that you use in your manufacturing, your um, your products, your, I don't know, your toilet paper. I, I, we had one person during the Botanical Congress say, that they've really been able to reduce so much of their, you know, waste and things in their in their manufacturing facilities. Their biggest source of of trash and of, of extra waste is their employee, uh, you know, lunchroom, because that you know people bring plastics and, and and these other types of things. So so you know, I, I think that's a, a really interesting thing to think about in terms of how are you how are you reducing your you know how are you improving your sustainability and how do you know. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And uh, we'll definitely have one episode in season two dedicated to regenerative agriculture. I think the other interesting thing would be talking about standards and seeing like GACP and regenerative and sort of seeing what best practices could be pulled across different standards. I think that's a really salient question. And because there's what I'm discovering is as we're looking at regenerative uh, agriculture certification for our project in Mexico. Um, oh, great. There's so many different certifications. It's not, but it's not like organic, right? Where he's like, well, the certifier is different. The standards are all the same. It doesn't matter. It's CCLF, Oregon Tilth, or whoever, right? It's still the USDA organic standard. But with, you know, fair life, fair trade, fair whatever. Um, they're all different seals and not the same standard and all the standards offer something slightly different and being a ingredient supplier, you know, we, we got to figure out which one, which, what standard our customers are using, what matters to them and getting certified to that standard because, you know, it's not, doesn't appear on the front of my package, right? It appears on the front of their packages. So it's, it's been quite an amazing journey and discovery as there as well. So I definitely love your suggestion. I definitely will. You'll definitely hear me ask your question to the experts. And thank you so much for joining me, Holly. And I hope to see you at Supply Side West. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure, Wilson. I'll be listening to your, to your upcoming vlogs and, and, and be really uh, excited to enjoy season two of this really cool Uh, show you've been doing thanks so much it's my pleasure always a pleasure to chat with you will do see you in vegas okay aloha thanks for listening to learn more about the business of herbs and botanicals visit newherbs.com to keep listening to great episodes be sure to subscribe to this podcast in itunes google play amazon or spotify and make sure to give us a rating too